welcome to Revolutionary Women. My name is Tess Silverman. Women around the world are constantly creating ways to make a difference in their communities, and today's guest is no exception. Amy Impolizari is a reformed corporate litigator, former startup executive, award-winning author of fiction and nonfiction, and host of the Speak Studio original podcast, I Know How This Book Ends. Amy's novels have earned awards and recognition, including IndieFab Book of the Year Awards, the inaugural Francis Ford Coppola Books and Bottles pick, National Indie Excellence Awards, and more. New York Times bestselling author Christy Whitson Harvey calls her a standout in the fiction world. Kirkus Reviews, in a starred review, compared Amy's latest novel in her defense to Big Little Lies and called it crackling courtroom drama. Amy is also the author of Lawyer Interrupted, published by the American Bar Association and co-author of the newly available How to Leave the Law, featured in Bloomberg Law, Boston Business Journal, and more. New York Times bestselling author Marie Benedict calls How to Leave the Law a wise and invaluable guide to lawyers. Amy is a tall poppy writer, a past president of the Women's Fiction Writers Association, a 2018 writer-in-residence at MissJD.org, recipient of Miss J.D.'s Road Less Traveled Award, faculty member in Drexel University's MFA in Creative Writing Program, and a frequently invited speaker at legal conferences and writing workshops. Connect with Amy at www.amyandpelizzeri.com. Hi, Amy. Welcome to Revolutionary Woman. How are you this morning? I'm good. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you for coming on the show. Um, okay, so let's get started. Uh, I read that you grew up in Pennsylvania. Can you tell mm-hmm. me what part of Pennsylvania and what it was like growing up for you um, in Pennsylvania? Well, it's funny. I, I grew up in a t- in Allentown, um, oh, okay. made f- famous by Billy Joel, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. uh, about um, a little over an hour outside of Philadelphia. And um it really is kind of small town living. And then I um, went to, I went to college in Pennsylvania, I went to Dickinson college and then eventually ended up in, in Washington, DC and New York, mm-hmm. went to law school in DC and, and practiced law in DC and New York. Mm-hmm. But um, after about 20 years in the city, mm-hmm. I have circled back to Pennsylvania. So I actually live not far from where I grew up and that's where I'm raising my kids about an hour outside of Philadelphia and Pennsylvania, in oh. rural Pennsylvania. <laughs> so wh- why why did you go back? I mean, what was it or what is it about it, like coming back home in a way? Well, the short answer is I actually came back because my husband at the time uh, got his, basically his first job um, after we, uh, after he went to med school and medical training in New York, mm-hmm. he got his first job and we had um, three small kids and I had, I was working, mm-hmm. I, I was practicing law at the time. Mm-hmm. He got his first job in Pennsylvania. Oh, um, but okay. part of the consideration about, about taking that particular job was the fact that I was familiar with the area. It was sort of returning home for me, mm-hmm. which I really didn't expect to do, but <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you know, when we were sort of making, weighing those those, the options, it sort of felt like uh, a, a good thing to come back home and raise my children okay. where I had grown up. Uh-huh. But um, and, and then later we got divorced and, mm. and here I was sort of back home. So it's funny how the roads lead you in the places where you're supposed to be, um, even though you really, you know, mm. don't, don't always see them that way. Yeah. OK. 
Great. Um, so you went to law school in D.C. and practiced law yeah. in New York City for years. So what type of law? Yeah. What type of law did you practice? Well, I started my legal career in Washington, D.C., uh, working for the Court of Federal Claims, working oh. specifically for the Vaccine Court, oh, which cool. is a very, wow. yes, it was a very specialized court. It was very interesting and, of course, has become uh, a lot of people didn't really even know about it and mm -hmm. has sort of come back into the national spotlight in the last couple of years. But right. I worked on the vaccine court in its infancy, and it was a really amazing experience and solidified for me uh -huh. that I wanted to be a litigator. I wanted wow. to be a trial lawyer. Oh my and so when I was in New York, I was in New York for 13 years, mm -hmm. and I was a litigator. First, I started with a small firm. Um, a boutique firm mm -hmm. and I worked, I was national counsel for, for, for uh, my firm was national counsel for Amtrak. Mm. So I did a lot of Amtrak and railroad work, mm -hmm. a lot of insurance defense work. And then I went to work for a really large law firm in New York city called Skadden Arps. And I worked on really high profile litigation at that time oh. for about a decade. Wow. Okay. So yeah. uh, um, let's go back to your, um, your role in DC in vaccine court. So what? Yeah. What? I mean, that's fascinating. So did you get to meet, or were the cases you tried in DC um, with NGOs, or was it like, I mean, what? So here's what it was. I was a clerk. I was working for actually the chief special master who had. Um, it was basically a panel of judges or special masters who uh -huh. were hearing the cases. Uh -huh. The the. The vaccine court was created after legislation in the 1980s, um, the late 1980s, in which a lot of vaccine manufacturers were being sued for mm. vaccine injuries relating to DPT, MMR, oh, and wow. also polio shots. Okay. At the time, the, the, the polio shots were all live polio. And in fact, at the time, the only, lot, the only cases of polio in the country were related to vaccines. Huh. Okay. So uh, there was a lot of litigation against the vaccine manufacturers and the they were actually um, largely winning the lawsuits, but the cost of litigation was so prohibitive that it was driving vaccine manufacturers off the market. Mm -hmm. And it was declared a public health crisis mm -hmm. and legislation was passed in the late 1980s called the Childhood the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act, oh. which established a specialized court. And so it remains true that if you have a, an alleged vaccine injury, you have to bring your case in the vaccine court before you can bring it anywhere else. Wow. The defendant is the government. Huh. And um, okay. yeah, and there are specialized plaintiff's attorneys that specialize in this um, kind of litigation. And so I worked for the chief judge who had put, uh, was really the architect of the program and then um, did a lot of the you know, heard a lot of cases in the infancy of the court. Now, of course, it's expanded greatly. Mm -hmm. And um, but at the time we heard a lot of I mean, the judge I worked for heard a lot of the cases um, challenging the connection between autism huh. and vaccines and a lot of other, um, you know, alleged vaccine related injuries. Wow. So it has it has the, the, the interesting thing is the vaccine court um, paved the way for the reintroduction of vaccines back onto the market. And, wow. and, and that became a robust industry again. And truly that court mm -hmm. paved the way later on for the COVID vaccines, mm -hmm. because when people talk about the COVID vaccines being rushed to market, that's not true at all. They mm -hmm. were in, you know, that the sort of science behind those was 
was going on for 30 years because vaccine manufacturers were uh, were encouraged and and the and and uh, you know basically the market was such that they could do research and production again um, after their litigation costs were sort of removed from the table. So wow. it actually has been was a instrumental part in what eventually became the availability, the expedited availability of the COVID vaccine. That's incredible. That's really, yeah. Yeah. wow. I mean, when you yeah, said that. Yeah, it was that... really a full circle moment to see everything sort of come to, to pass over the last couple of, of years. It really sort of, I felt really proud again of, you know, about my role mm-hmm. at the vaccine court all those years ago. That's really how my my legal career started. That's wild. And, and it's really yeah. interesting. Because I didn't hear, I, I didn't see that on your bio. And so when you mentioned that, I'm like, wait, vaccine court, what's that? <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. let me go back into that one. Um, okay, so then you left your legal career to write and advocate for women, working women and entrepreneurs as the VP Community and Designer Relations for ShopFunder LLC. So what, yeah. is, what is ShopFunder and what did your role entail? Yeah, so I actually started working for them when I took a sabbatical from the law for a year. Uh-huh. I started, I connected with them. Um, they, their, or their earlier name was actually Hybrid Her, and then they huh. um, rebranded as ShopFunder. And Hybrid Her was a print magazine that was moving to an online uh, community. Okay. And they worked with female entrepreneurs, female inventors, helped them market, helped them tell their stories. Mm. And I I was on sabbatical from the law. I was doing writing. Mm-hmm. I was writing for um, trade journals. And and then I I actually connected with this company and I just, I loved their mission. I thought they were so fascinating. They were venture capital funded. So they were really expanding and, and I helped, I worked on their online um, commerce mm-hmm. vehicle, which was called the, the online bazaar. Mm-hmm. And, um, it was a really fun project and, and they didn't need a, a lawyer. What they needed was somebody to help translate and be the liaison between the legal team and the oh, creative team. Okay. And I, and I came, I came on to sort of do that. And then I started working with the women directly. I started writing up their stories and, mm. and as my work with them continued and as they continued to evolve uh, into shop funder, which became um, basically a, it was an online like I said, the online commerce site where the women mm-hmm. would sell their um, products, mm-hmm. but also the community was sort of used by philanthrop- philanthropies and nonprofit groups who would um, raise money mm-hmm. by inviting people to shop at the site. Uh-huh. And so it was like crowdfunding um, uh-huh. through shopping. Yeah. yeah. And, and so all of the, because all of the designers and all of the, the women on the site had these incredible stories and had uh, part of their mission was to, you know, raise funds and do philanthropy through their work. Mm-hmm. And so it was all this like really incredible synergy. So I worked there for, um, to help build up the site and the company for a number of years mm. before I, um, and I was working on a book at the side on the side I was working my first book on the side and and so and I then while I was working on my first novel I was starting to think about shopping it I was approached by an agent for the American Bar Association who had read some of my work on uh, you know being on sabbatical from the law Mm -hmm. and the versatility of the law degree Mm -hmm. and she asked me to help pitch a book that became 
Lawyer Interrupted, which became my first nonfiction book. And so long story short, I I received two book contracts within the same year, one for a fiction manuscript, one for a nonfiction manuscript. And at that time, I left Startup World and and started to work full, uh, started to write full time. Wow, that's wild. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, um, that's really. Cool. It was certainly not overnight, though. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> let me just tell you, it took five or six years before that happened. Wow. Okay. So, so was that at the same time that you got involved with Tall Poppy Writers? Um, and yeah. What What's Tall Poppy Writers about? Yeah, so Tall Poppy, the Tall Poppy Writers were founded by Ann Garvin. She's a USA Today bestselling author and a really incredible human. Mm. And she started this group. It's it's a group of female writers, and it is a marketing cooperative. Um, mm. You know, the women get together. They and it's it's the only author driven cross genre marketing uh, cooperative that exists. Mm. Um, there are some sort of like groups of authors that work for the same publisher mm-hmm. that work together to market each other or in the same genre that work together to market each other. But this is truly uh, a very innovative, um, it's an award-winning group mm-hmm. who have um, basically cross genres, cross publishing strata. So it, it's usually anywhere from at any given time, a group of women from about the number from about 40 to 50 across the country Mm -hmm. who represent a variety of different publishing houses and genres Mm -hmm. and market each other. And, and truly you, um, every author in the group has published at least two books. Um, because the idea is that, you know, there's some experience and there's some, um, publishing experience behind the work. Mm-hmm. And um, so after I published my second book, yes, I became aware of the top copy writers and I was invited to join the group by Ian Garvin. And um, that wow. was in, so my, my second book came out in 2015. Uh-huh. So I think I've been a member of the group since about 2016. Yeah. That's, that's really amazing. I love that. Um, so, okay. So you went from practicing law to becoming a writer, a fiction author. Yeah. So yeah. w- was that an easy transition for you since you've already been writing? Oh, yeah, sure. It was a piece okay. of cake. No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it wasn't easy at all. And um, I laugh because I I do a lot of continuing legal education classes. I do a lot of legal conferences and writing huh. conferences. Uh-huh. And and I am often, whenever I do a legal conference, I always ask to a section about, I talk a lot about transitioning from the law, the practice of law mm-hmm. and using your JD for good and the versatility of the JD. Mm-hmm. And whenever I do a talk at a legal conference, they always ask me to do a section about writing for lawyers and writing a book for lawyers. And I, I, I do always caution lawyers to not fall into the trap of thinking that because you write for a living, mm-hmm. um, it translates easily mm-hmm. to novel writing or any other kind of writing, to be honest with you, because right. The thing about legal writing is that you really are always writing in your client's voice and you're not ever really writing in your own voice. And part of fiction writing is very much developing your your own voice. And I had to work at that. And that Mm. was not something that came easily, but it was something that I was really committed to. Uh And it's something that I tell um, really all would be novelists, but certainly lawyer novelists, I think. Um, have to be more cautious about that. And I, I certainly, um, I'm still a student of writing. Mm. I still go to writing conferences. I always, um, yeah, oh, absolutely. I'm always, always a student of writing. I, I had a really interesting conversation with Jacqueline Michard not too long ago. She was Oprah's very first book club pick author. She wrote 
an amazing book, The Deep End of the Ocean, came out in 1997. Hmm. And she has since then written, you know, more than 20 books. And 25 years later, her 20 plus uh, book came out. Uh, recently called The Good Son. She's written middle grade and children's books and adult fiction as well. Mm -hmm. But I asked her, you know, 25 years later, this incredible book that she just wrote, The Good Son, what what's different? Mm -hmm. And she said to me, not a thing. She Mm -hmm. said, it's still so hard. It's still so hard to write. And I thought, well, okay, if Jacqueline (laughs) Shark hasn't figured out the secret formula in Uh 25 years, then I certainly can't believe that I have found it out. Mm -hmm. So yeah, um, yeah, I mean, I think the when, when people ask professional writers, mm-hmm. you know, what's your best book? Hopefully the answer is uh, the next one, mm-hmm. because you're always trying to improve your craft. You're always trying to hone your craft. You're always trying to push yourself, you know, and challenge yourself and really push beyond um, the boundaries of, of what you've, what you've done so far. So it, it continues. Okay. I continue to be a work in progress for oh. sure. So combining law and writing, yeah. Um, so yeah. It, w- did you have an aha moment when you thought this is what you wanted to do? You wanted to write about characters that also involved the law. Yeah, I did. I mean, over, during during the pandemic, mm-hmm. um, I had written my I had written a book called I Know How This Ends. And it was so my very first novel that came out was called Lemongrass Hope. Mm-hmm. That was my first uh, my first published book. It came out in 2014. And then I wrote a series of standalone books that that were unrelated to that book. But hmm. I often was asked, it remains, Lemongrass Hope remains my best-selling book. And people often would ask me if I was going to write a follow-up. It had some, some of an ambiguous ending. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Had, people have interpreted a lot of different ways. And I always swore I was never gonna, going to write a follow-up book. I couldn't imagine writing a sequel. Mm-hmm. But eventually, I came up with this idea as I was writing through the years that I was going to write a, a paraquel, a book that ran alongside of this book. It is a book about parallel universes and, and there's time, a time travel and magical realism element to it. And so after I wrote three standalone books, I wrote a follow-up book, book to Lemongrass Hope called mm. I Know How This Ends. Mm. And, and then I sort of looked at those books, those five books set end to end, and they were basically traveled the first decade away from the law for me Mm -hmm. and they felt like a memoir you know they were all fiction they were all none of them were autobiographical Mm -hmm. but they felt very personal and they felt like a little bit of a memoir of that that 10 first 10 years away from the law Mm -hmm. and I started to think I never wanted to write legal fiction Mm -hmm. but I started Mm -hmm. to think as we were in the pandemic and what my next my next chapter was going to be I started to realize that 10 years away from the law was enough time to sort of have some hindsight Mm -hmm. to look back on the lessons I learned practicing the characters I met practicing Mm -hmm. and the cases I worked on while I was practicing law and, and that I could pull those apart and stretch them apart to start writing a Mm -hmm. new series. And so I pitched a new legal series um, and I wrote the first two books during the pandemic. Uh, The first one, so the series is called the river's edge law club series and all of the books are, standalone books but Mm -hmm. they're connected by um a hub a town called a fictional town called river's edge Mm -hmm. in which there's a law club um basically the equivalent of a a a legal country club Mm -hmm. where a lot of backdoor politics happens and a Mm -hmm. lot of deals get made and, and and interesting things happen and and so the first book came out um, this past spring called In Her Defense. Mm-hmm. The second book is coming out in the oh. spring of 2023. Cool. It's called Bar None. 
and yeah. yeah and and then if those books continue to do well there there's plans for a third and fourth so wow. we'll see how it goes but it's been a very full circle moment for me to wow. have those two pieces of my life converge okay. in the form of a legal series yeah I've been very very excited about that that's really cool okay so yes yeah. so you've been writing different genres and then the last yeah. one so you, you published five books and your latest one in her defense um like you said, it's a legal drama. Yes, and yes. So what I loved about In Her Defense was that the main characters were not all good and good or bad. Right. And they didn't right. even, I mean, they didn't even think of things as being all black and white. Did you do that on right. purpose? Yeah, I, I love, thank you for saying that. That's a really great compliment. And I, I yeah, I love to write characters like that. Uh-huh. I love to write characters um, who are real mm-hmm. and who have lots of layers yeah. and who um, you will sometimes be really mad at and mm-hmm. sometimes root for. Yeah. And I like to write about redemption and second chances. And, um, and I like, yeah, I like, I like to write about characters who will surprise you. Yeah. Oh so gosh, I like to write yeah. the <laughs> kinds of books that I like to read. Right. So, uh-huh. That's that's I enjoy the process of writing very much. I love how the characters evolve and I and I like sort of um, thinking that through. And 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 so thank you. It's very rewarding when readers get that. And I appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, I took notes. (laughs) I took notes. I had notes on your like every chapter. I wrote down notes. And, you know, I mean, your characters, I loved both Ingrid and Opal. Um, I mean, you had characters who weren't good. But you also had characters who did things that they wouldn't normally do, but did it for their self-preservation. Um, right. So do you think that most people have an aspect of gray in them? Yes, for sure. Mm-hmm. And see, what I really love to dive into is the backstory, the motivation, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Because you can look, it's, 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 it's that old saying, you know, everyone's got a story. Everyone's yeah. got something right. that they're, they're fighting about, that, mm-hmm. a challenge they've overcome, mm-hmm. um, a challenge they haven't quite overcome. And so, um, I, you know, you can, you can write about people and their choices and their actions. Mm-hmm. Um, but th- to me, that's only interesting if you're looking at their backstory, their motivation, right. their, what, what really drove them to yeah. those places. Yeah. Um, you know, it's sort of like the, the, the whole genre of the backstories of fairy tales, you mm-hmm. know, the wicked, the yeah, wicked yeah, stories yeah. of the world. And, right. you know, just sort of really looking at what, what transpired to turn Mm-hmm. Uh, the Wicked Witch, you know, mm-hmm. Wicked. Yeah. And I think it's very um, fun to look at those things. I think that it's it creates, hopefully, a little bit of empathy, yeah. certainly in me as I'm writing and right. perhaps in the reader as they're reading. Yeah, I, you know, what I loved about you, the women characters, each had their own burdens to carry, but then they yeah. never lost sight of who they were. Uh, and yes. so was that a conscious choice as well? Yeah, I mean, in her defense, one of the themes, I always think about this as I'm writing, you know, what are the themes? What am I really tackling here? And mm-hmm. it's, 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 like I said, it's, my books are not autobiographical, but mm-hmm. they are personal because they often are tackling things yeah. I am thinking about and, mm-hmm. and living in. And, um, you know, a big thing, a big theme in, in her defense was knowing yourself. Yep. And mm-hmm. uh, there's a, there's sort of a character in, in her defense, who may at first glance seem like a minor character, Jane, mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. comes into Ingrid's life. She was a 
she was a colleague at when she was practicing law and then yeah. she becomes um, a friend and a mentor later on. And, right. and she um, talks a lot to Ingrid about knowing yourself mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. what that means and how it looks maybe different than people mm-hmm. might think it does and how it um, really influenced, it really influenced and, and impacted Ingrid as she was moving along. And of course, I think Opal um, didn't necessarily have someone saying right. that out loud to her in the story, right. but that was certainly for sure a struggle for, for her and, yeah. and a journey for her. Okay. Well, and so you mentioned the law club, um, which was yeah. like a country club. So I yeah. mean, your character, Ingrid, wanted to be a member of the law club so badly, uh, yeah. but she was never considered or accepted to be a part of it. Did you ever experience any bias while you were practicing law? And how did you yeah. deal with it? Yeah, I mean, people ask me that a lot. If if the the law club, the Rivers Edge Law Club, is based on any one place, mm-hmm. and the 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 answer is yes, hmm. but not the way you might think. Not a brick and mortar building. Mm-hmm. For me, it definitely represents the sort of the the, the club, the the old club uh, that yeah. I faced down for sure as I was practicing law, okay. and um, there were you know lots and lots of incidents where. I was, I felt like I was really kind of battling uphill Mm. to sort of be a member of that club. And I, like I said, I, I started my law career at a small boutique firm. Mm -hmm. I absolutely loved the experience and I, I leveraged that then to go on to work for this enormous law firm. And on paper, it it really should have been like everything I had worked hard to achieve. Mm -hmm. And yet there were real challenges um, Mm -hmm. to working in that environment. Mm -hmm. Um, I I have told a lot of stories over the years at book events and otherwise about being the only woman in the room, Mm -hmm. um, at the time, the only young woman in the room and um, being you know, treated, uh, being, uh, uh, people assuming I was not a lawyer, right. people assuming yeah. I was somebody's assistant. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, <laughs> wow. yeah, I have lots of proverbial and literal, um, being asked to fetch coffee <laughs> stories. Um, yeah. so, so yeah. for me it was, but you know what? I always, I always, I say one of my greatest superpowers is, um, that people have underestimated me over mm-hmm. the years and, I have used that to my advantage. I have startled and surprised people. Mm-hmm. I have had very dramatic in court moments mm-hmm. where I have um, surprised witnesses and mm-hmm. startled uh, opposing counsel. And and so to me, I turned those things into a superpower. And I I channeled that mm-hmm. when I came up with the idea of the Rivers Edge Law Club. Mm-hmm. I think it's a really um, fun idea to have this brick and mortar place mm-hmm. where the women in my series, and it's, they're unlikely heroes. Like you said, these are not, um, perfect women mm-hmm. and, and they will continue. Bar none is, uh, will continue that tradition of having women with lots of layers mm. and, um, the, you know, but, but yet they are unlikely heroes who are knocking on the door of this, this club mm-hmm. and trying yeah. to figure out, how to get in while right. also staying true to themselves. Yeah. And um, yeah. So that's what that's that's the fun of this series. Yeah, I, I love the layers and, and because yeah. it really makes you think, you know, as someone who, you know, was in the advertising industry, working in the advertising yeah. industry. Yeah. That's another one that's like, you know, so male dominated for so many years. And then you yes. like you said, you know, they're like 
they don't really take your opinion that seriously. They, I mean, they'll listen maybe, but then they're like, mm-hmm. they keep, okay, so next, you know, and I'm like, mm, okay. So yeah, it, it's fascinating when I started reading your book and I'm like, this is really, I mean, when I started figuring out, it's like, oh, okay, you know, they each have their own um, gray areas, but at the end of it, you know, at the end of it, they really know who they are. They, they, and they try to, and they, they stay true to themselves, which is really awesome. So I love that. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. I, I really loved it. Um, so can you mention a time when you thought you needed to do something that would affect your life and others? A time that I thought I, I would need to, is that what you said? I'm sorry. Well, I thought, um, a time when you thought you needed to do something that could affect your life and others. Well, I guess the very obvious thing that's coming to mind is when I uh, decided to get a divorce, Mm, (laughs) which was certainly going to be a big change in my life and the life of my children. Mm -hmm. But it was at that point, it was a necessary as people, anybody who's been faced with that decision knows Mm -hmm. there comes a time that uh, it becomes a very necessary decision. Mm. So, um, and to be honest with you, I often say that uh, leaving the law Mm -hmm. um, prepared me well for my divorce because um, a lot of the same challenges and, mm. and sort of obstacles that I had to face, my identity, financial, mm. um, you know, just transitional decisions were certainly, I had certainly navigated when I left the law. Mm-hmm. I had navigated them over the course of a decade um, gradually. But uh, so, you know, when I, when uh, I got divorced, I, I was prepared for a transition. Mm. Um, it doesn't mean that it went flawlessly, but right. I think, I do think I was well prepared for it um, yeah. by my transition from the law. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I would think that you're more prepared than most people would be because you already had, you know, basically the, the um, I guess the, the different foundation for it. Right. The, yeah. So, okay. And the identity issue is, is a big one and it's mm. a big one for transitioning lawyers. You know, mm-hmm. who will I be if mm-hmm. I'm not a practicing lawyer? And, and, um, you know, getting divorced was a very similar question, you know, mm-hmm. who will I be mm-hmm. um, in, in this next chapter? So, yeah. Uh, okay. So is there someone you would credit for where you are now? Is there someone I would credit? Well, lots of people. I mean, there have been lots of people who have been very supportive along the journey. Um, and I, actually, interesting, we were talking about the vaccine court. One of my first mentors in the law mm-hmm. continues to be um, a really great inspiration to me, which was the chief special master that I worked for, Gary Golkowitz. He was an incredible mentor in mm-hmm. the law. And um, and my, I tell him, sometimes I tell him he, he ruined me because he really made me believe that uh, it was going to be uh, much easier. Mm. Oh, boy. <laughs> and, um, uh-huh. and I say that only facetiously um, because, uh-huh. you know, when I got out in the world, I realized not all uh, mentors were going to be as generous mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, wise and, and, and smart and hardworking as him. But, mm. you know, I then, you know, frankly, I had to kind of dig deep um, into my own work ethic and my own self, know right. myself right. to sort of navigate the next the next time um, of my career. But my children have been a huge inspiration for me because it was very important to me to model for them, Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, strong choices, uh, both personally and professionally. Mm -hmm. My daughter, I have two sons 
And then my youngest child is a daughter. And she, when I left the law, she was only two. Oh, and wow. there was oh. a, there was, a, there was a period of time where I was sort of horrified by the idea that she might not remember mm-hmm. um, that I had been a practicing lawyer. Mm-hmm. And that really worried me. And I was very careful and intentional about the professional decisions I made after that, but she would really see me as mm-hmm. a strong um, working woman. Mm-hmm. And I, even after I left the law, like I said, I worked in startup and, and as a novelist, and I've always actually worked um, other, done other work alongside um, writing mm-hmm. that was very visible. So I've worked for nonprofits and I've worked at um, an adjunct at Drexel and I've, I've worked oh, in wow. education and, and I've always tried to sort of have very visible jobs for my children also. So they, they know I'm a writer. They love that. Mm-hmm. They think that's really fun. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've also just been very careful about making sure they see mm-hmm. um, how hard I work mm-hmm. um, and that, that that's a good model and example for them. So they, right. in that sense, are really, they greatly inspire and impact my journey. All right. That's awesome. Okay. So Amy, going forward... What are your personal goals, or is there something you haven't yet done that you would like to do? Oh, I mean, I'm always, um, I've always got goals on the horizon. I mean, I really, I am very excited about the series, and I'm very excited about developing the series, mm-hmm. but I also am writing standalone books on the side. Oh. And I did write my second um, nonfiction book, just came out last month. It's called How to Leave the Law. I co-authored that book. Uh-huh. with Liz Brown, who um, is a Harvard-trained former practicing lawyer, now law professor. Mm-hmm. And we um, continue to counsel would-be transitioning lawyers um, about sort of using their JDs for good. Mm-hmm. So I will continue to do that. But I will also continue to write and continue to hopefully push myself um, and um, find new genres, find new new themes to explore, new themes to tackle. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so those, those things will continue to, to push me. Yeah. Okay. Oh, so you, you spoke about transitioning lawyers. Mm-hmm. Is that something that, um, is it similar to, I mean, I don't know if it is or not, but is it yeah. similar to, I guess, someone who's been a doctor for so long and then they leave and that they don't know what next to do or someone who's retiring or not even retiring, but, you know, just leaving for, for different reasons. Is that the same thing? Yeah. I mean, it's an industry with a lot of burnout and, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. and people, um, you know, when I was leaving the law 13 years into my career, I didn't know what I was qualified to do other than practice law. There was a, Uh, there was a, uh you know, fiction in, in the, industry for a long time that after you graduate from law school, really the only thing you're qualified to do is go work for a law firm. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. while that's an a, that is a choice and an avenue, it's mm-hmm. not the only thing that you're qualified to do. And, and I started working in that space when I, when I wrote Lawyer Interrupted, mm-hmm. it came out in 2015. And then as I started speaking at legal conferences and, and met Liz Brown, and we sort of started to understand that a lot of people didn't realize how versatile their law degree was and how many oh. different things they could do. We started talking more and more about it. Right. And and at the time I wrote Lawyer Interrupted, actually a lot of states, their local bar associations had lawyers in transition committees, but they oh. were only huh. focused on retiring lawyers. Oh, Nobody wow. was giving any thought to the idea of a mid-career transition. Right. And so we've really advocated for that and um, for a change in that idea. And, and mm-hmm. just, just sort of 
it, it's it's always helpful to to any industry mm-hmm. to, to to make sure that there's attrition, um, you know, healthy attrition of people who are who have reached, you know, sort of the end of the the, the life cycle of mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. that career um, or that area of their career to move on and do something else that invigorates and excites them, and and then it it enhances the reputation and the morale of the of the industry as a whole. So that's been yeah. something that's been really important yeah. to us. Yeah. So how do you think, um, how do you think the pandemic affected, um, the legal industry or, or lawyers for the most part? Yeah. Well, you know, what's funny about it is that lawyers are, the legal field is historically very slow to, uh, to change mm-hmm. and, and very mm-hmm. slow to adapt change, to mm-hmm. accept change. I mean, lawyers were still before the pandemic, they were still traveling across the country mm. for hour long meetings, wow. traveling across the country for depositions, um, not interested in zooming, not uh-huh. interested in, you know, uh-huh. uh, really using technology to its fullest potential. So I think that has been a wonderful silver lining of the pandemic. I think mm-hmm. it has really um, increased the productivity and efficiency mm-hmm. of lawyers and and pushed them to accept um, changes that they wouldn't otherwise have accepted. I will say though, I do hear from a lot of lawyers that that was one of the first industries that went back to working in person in, in, you know, in offices and physical offices and still remains a challenge. There are some law firms that are, uh, adapting more to, Mm -hmm. you know, a post pandemic hybrid model and others that are just still, (laughs) still wow. holding their feet to the fire. Oh my but gosh. Okay. I do think, um, I think there have been some, I think that has been uh, a change, but I also think that it has accelerated for many, the decision to transition. Mm-hmm. Um, this mm-hmm. sort of idea that life is short, that they got mm-hmm. sort of a, a taste of, of what life might be outside of the law yeah. and that it's not and when I say outside the law, I mean outside the practice, the traditional practice of law, mm-hmm. and that people are starting to sort of understand. And that's why How to Leave the Law, we actually signed the contract for that book and started writing that book before the pandemic. And oh, then it wow. changed scope very much during the pandemic because we started to understand that really it was going to become a tool for people who had started to understand during the pandemic that they were going to need other alternatives. Mm-hmm. They were going to need um, other choices. And so that's how that book um, evolved and took shape, yeah. Wow. Okay, so, Amy, if anyone wanted to know more about you and your books, how would they go about it? Yeah, so please sign up for my newsletter at amyimpalazari.com, my website, and um, you can follow me on social media. I'm very active across the social media channels. It's at amyimpalazari on Twitter Mm -hmm. and Instagram and at Amy on Facebook. Okay. So is there anything you would like to say to my listeners? Yeah, I mean, for sure, I think it's very important to, as we've been talking uh, today about, you know, the journey to know yourself. Mm -hmm. And I think that people, we often sort of tamp down our creative pursuits or trying to feed the creative part of ourselves when we think those things aren't compatible with um, our professional lives mm-hmm. or making a living. And what I tell a lot of would be transitioning lawyers, which I think really applies to uh, people across various industries is that, you know, when you starve that, that piece of yourself, when you starve that creative self, um, it really starts to impact 
all of the, mm. the, the areas of your life and, right. and really starts to bleed over to dissatisfaction in all of your areas of life. And if you can really feed that creative part of your soul, mm-hmm. um, I think you'll find you be more productive and more efficient um, in your day job and yeah. other and other areas of your life. So um, so don't do that. <laughs> mm. Okay. So if you had one thing to change that you wish you had done years ago, what would it be? Oh, I, I have a hard time with that question because hmm. I don't, I mean, I don't think I would change. Um, I don't think I would change much. I do think that I have arrived at this place and I'm still, like I said, still a work in progress and mm-hmm. still journeying. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I certainly have brought people often ask me, you know, did you, um, how did you leave the law behind? And I really didn't leave it behind. I brought it with me right. and the experiences I've had over the years have, I've leveraged to new experiences. Mm-hmm. And so it would be really hard to change what came before, because I think that would have really, you know, impacted. I mean, we would all like have liked things to be easier mm-hmm. and, you know, less obstacles along the way. But then again, it, that has really impacted me. And like I said, I really, I think I have been really conscious about making sure my children see resiliency and hard work. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't necessarily have wanted that to be an easier path yeah. um, for their sake. So right. yeah, I'm not sure I would have changed much. Okay. And so my last question is, if you could go back in time, what advice would you give your younger self? Oh, be patient, which is so hard for me. It's one mm. of my worst traits uh-huh. <laughs> in patience. Uh, so I would definitely tell her to be patient. Mm-hmm. Um, I would not tell her too much because I would really want her to um, keep working hard and stay the course. And I would, I might whisper to her that there are many more chapters than she even realizes ahead mm. of her. I love that. Wow. Yeah. Oh, well, Amy, I, I loved your book. Thank you, by oh, the way. Thank it's you really so much. awesome. And, and I can't wait to read the second one. <laughs> and, Wonderful. Uh, thank you. Yeah, That's I so mean, it, it really, like, you know, I'm like, oh, I, I wasn't sure because, it's a, like you said, it's a legal drama. I'm like, yeah. I, mean, I love legal dramas when I'm watching something, yeah. but to read about it. But yeah. it was really fascinating because the characters uh-huh. really had layers. And I yes. love that. And, and just the situations that they each had to come into. Uh, that they had to go through in order to yeah. like find themselves was really yes. beautiful. I love that. Um, but please, yeah, I, I can't wait to read that, and, and I'm also gonna um, read your other your other um, the first book that Thank you did. You. So I I can't wait to read that one. Um, thank you so much. Oh my gosh! Yeah, thank you for stopping by, and uh, good luck with your other projects and and thank the other you. books that you will be writing. Um, and please keep me posted. I would love to continue this conversation and, you know, and uh, hopefully have you on when your next one comes out. So I would love that. Thank and, you for all you're doing in this space. I'm really grateful. Thank you. Oh my gosh. Well, thank you for, for, you know, um, introducing us to your work and, and, you know, really giving women, um, these fascinating layers that, you know, I, I, I yeah. it's funny because it's like, oh, you know, I, it, that's when it started dawning on me. It's like, you know, it's not just, it, it, it's really applied to everyone because every single person yeah. has a gray area, you know, but we yes. never really address it until it comes out, you know, until yes. we have to really deal with it. 
So yeah. I thank you for, for that. And um, I can't wait to like have you back. <laughs> it's awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much. Oh my gosh. Well, with that, um, have a great day and I will talk with you soon. Thank you. Okay. Have a good one. Bye. Bye. That's our show for today. I've posted more information about Amy and Palazzari on RevWoman.com. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll tune in every Thursday for another episode of Revolutionary Woman. You can listen to Revolutionary Woman on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. Just a little note. I've launched a Patreon account to support the show. All proceeds will go to producing and editing the episodes to give my poor husband a break for being my personal IT and production department. He wrote this. The address is patreon.com slash revwoman.